Hi, I'm Lisa Brenner, letting you know that my new film, Say My Name, will be available in selected theaters and on demand starting June 14th. It's a madcap British comedy about love, one night stands, and criminals who shoot themselves in the leg. To find out more, go to the Say My Name Movie Facebook page or simply search the hashtag Say My Name Movie on whatever social media you use, and you might just see me in a sex scene. That's all I'm saying. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by Jodorowsky's Dune producer Steve Scarlatta and Josh Miller, where they explore some of the greatest movies that were never made, from E.T. 2 to Tim Burton's Superman, Night Skies to Star Trek The Academy Years. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of Star Trek, check out my new sci-fi TV series, Pandora, debuting on The CW and around the world on July 9th, starring Priscilla Quintana and Oliver Dench, and you can find out more by downloading the Unboxing Pandora podcast, available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. Get ready to join the Inglorious Trexperts live at San Diego Comic-Con as they boldly go to the greatest Comic-Con on Earth. We'll be there, will you? Meet all your favorite and least favorite Inglorious Trexperts hosts as they talk Trek live and in person, only at San Diego Comic-Con. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And I'm Darren Doctorman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And have we got a show for you today. <laughs> school days, Darren. Remember school, college, I, high school? I do. It's so long ago, but yes, I can barely remember my days at school. Do you think in the 23rd century they went to college? Well, sure. Why wouldn't they? Well, they did. <laughs> in, in, in this wonderful, uh, interesting, unproduced uh, a script called Star Trek The Academy Years. Are you saying that this might be the best Star Trek never made? It could be. I mean, you know, that and Free Enterprise too, <laughs> That's right? right? So um, anyway, I, I'm, I'm really happy because we got some great guests. We got uh, from the Burnett, Burnett work, uh, the writer- uh, um, On loan from the Editor Burnett and director <laughs> of um, uh, Free Enterprise, a producer of Agent Cody Banks and The Hills Run Red, and the producer of all that great bonus content on uh, the Star Trek The Next Generation Blu-rays, Mr. Rartmeyer Burnett is back. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm very honored to be with our distinguished guest and you, you kind gentlemen. And uh, the uh, writer producer, right, uh, sorry, writer of uh, movies like Thor and X Men First Class. He was also a producer on Black Sales and Lore and a bunch of Fringe, a bunch of other cool shows. A bunch of Fringe. A, a bunch, bunch of Fringe. fringe. Yeah. Surrey with the Fringe on top. Uh, Mr. Uh, Ashley E. Miller. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. And uh, we're really lucky uh, he, that he's still talking to us after we put him on stage at WonderCon and made him talk about Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And yet, He's willing to come down and talk to us a little bit more about his other piece of Star Trek history, which uh, you may not know much about, but by the time this podcast is over, you will. Uh, it's the uh, screenwriter of uh, Star Trek The Academy Years, Mr. David Lowry, is back with us. Hey, thank you for having me. Welcome. Yeah, I mean, look, this is such an interesting, uh, f I, 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 and I don't mean to sound insulting, footnote in Star Trek history, because, of course, this was a project that Harv Bennett 
um, wanted to do after Star Trek V. After after the film came out, the feeling that the cast was getting old, that maybe um, the box office on Star Trek V hadn't been... Uh, he said, how can we give new life to Star Trek? Well, let's go back. Let's do a prequel. What an interesting idea, mm-hmm. right? He was ahead of his time. And, um, and then you guys decided to... Uh, right, but I'm sure maybe your perspective on that's different, how this came about. I, I remember reading something about you coming, telling him this at his... A daughter's bar mitzvah or some bat mitzvah? Uh, I, I think what idea? happened was, I think that was Ralph Winter, you know, the executive mm. producer on the films. He brought this idea up to Harv, I think at his daughter's bar mitzvah, <laughs> this idea of doing a prequel <clears throat> with uh, Spock and Kirk meeting his, you know, young cadets at, at, at Starfleet. I think they came up with that idea maybe even sometime after the third or fourth movie mm. because mm. they were a little uncertain about the future, or whether they could get the classic cast back, you know, what the logistics of that were. So they always had this kind of ace up their sleeve, which was, if we can't make another movie with the with the classic cast, maybe we can do a prequel as a sort of special present to the to the fans. That so, was always how they couched it, wasn't it? It would have been a present to the fans. Well, the way we had it timed out, too, was that it would have come out, I think, during the 25th mm-hmm. anniversary. Right. Instead of Star Trek VI, the plan would have been that right. it would have been for the 25th anniversary, and uh, and it would have been a prequel. And a ri- the original intention was not to feature any of the cast originally, as right. I understand it. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember Harv in in an interview described it as a, a, a little a little sojourn off to the side where we can uh, you know experience these characters in different sure. circumstances, and then we'll get back to your yeah, yeah. your favorite a characters way not after to, that. Like, uh, yeah. Offend or or terrify the uh, the classic yeah. cast, and or... yet all these powerful forces aligned against the people who never agreed about anything. Suddenly, right. you had Gene Roddenberry saying this is a horrible idea, which is ironic given the fact that he had pitched a Star Trek prequel as early as 1969. He said, it'd be nice to you know, <laughs> see how the, the cast originally met. And he kept pitching that, and it got no traction. And then Harv pitches it, what a terrible idea! <laughs> um, and then, of course, you had the cast that just eviscerated it because they thought this was the end of a paycheck. Right. Well, you know, there's a, uh, a story that's probably apocryphal that when when Bill found out that we we're going to do this possibly do this Starfleet movie, he said, Kirk, at 18, I could do that. <laughs> I don't know if he really said that, but it sounds like something he Absolutely might- Absolutely uh, does. He, he might, he might say, but you know, also hysterical. this was sort of kept, kept secret right. from everybody for a long time. And it wasn't until probably after Five came out that this really kind of came into, you know, everyone's- uh, uh, sphere and and that's when I think Gene from the very beginning started or at least sort of supported these rumors that we were going to do a broad police academy send up of of Star Trek which was never never ever the intention. But at the time he terrified Paramount like they felt like he could marshal the fans on command so if if Gene was against it isn't that right Gene? it certainly was, and and I think the uh, one of the things that uh, we were very uh, concerned about was that this would uh, deflect He's doing Gene. deflect the <laughs> yes deflect the interest away from our our, our loved crew and uh, perhaps take it in a direction that we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't enjoy as much and uh, uh, well I I think that <laughs> I think that the rumor was that Gene if you would wear 
a short sleeve shirt and a sweater vest and hold the bottle this, of scotch this is a, this, this is a reason why i don't do that um yeah there, there's i don't think there's anyone else that does a gene roddenberry impersonation in the world so for now i got the gig sewn down um but i i think that i think that gene actually was the one who told the actors mm. about it to get them on his side too because he knew that they would be yeah. you know yeah, or or may have just leaked it to somebody in the in the fan core or something. Well, that because I always yeah. think like was Gene really that close to any of those people by that time? Well, yes. he you certainly know? had their numbers. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was still close with I think George and Walter. Yeah. And what did Duan? Right. Duan he was yeah. close with, and Duan was the most vocal uh, against it, if right. I remember. Right. Um, but what's interesting was this was also a chance for Harv to set himself up as director. Right. He wanted to direct the film. Yeah. Um, Although not initially. That, oh, really? that that came up uh that came up later. Um I started working on it while we were still shooting Star Trek five. We were in the desert on location. It was a really cold night and I was standing around with Harv and, and Ralph I think and I'd never heard this before. It just kind of like they just mentioned it casually that they always had this sort of hole card that if they couldn't get the classic cast together or it was too expensive, maybe we could do this alternative thing. And as soon as I <clears throat> heard the idea, I just said, I have to do this. We have to find a way to make this happen because I would almost do this for I, I had spent so much time with those characters you know that the opportunity to go back into the past and do them as you know in their in, uh, an ori- an origin story was just you know i it was the most exciting thing i think i've ever worked on yeah. it, just from a, my own sort of personal uh fun and enjoyment in uh in in, in doing that and were you ever approached in, in in i'm sort of going back in time you know uh the backwards rather than starting from the beginning which we probably should but were you ever approached about doing it as a, a novelization or a comic book adaptation because it really is this wonderful script that uh is obviously you know 10 people probably have it locked away um and um i'm surprised because there have been so many cases where, like, Gene's unproduced stuff, like the God thing they tried to do as a novel. I mean, were you ever approached about, you know, adapting it into uh, um, in some form or fashion? You know, it's actually an idea that I had, but I never had a conversation with anybody about it and was never really approached uh, to do it. And then I think by the early to mid-2000s when the J.J. Abrams thing was Mm – reboot was happening i'm sure that wasn't going to be you know a priority for anybody maybe we should connect you up with our comic book friends yeah oh with the tipton brothers yeah oh that's a good idea i bet they would idw might yeah they would i bet they would love to that's a good idea we should do that we were just bringing people together on the show (laughs) um that's a wonderful idea and they listen to the show they're they're avid listeners so if we forget to email you guys we we can we have david lowry's email and uh you know i think it would be a great it's because it's a really wonderful let's talk about let's talk about the script um tell us a little bit about the Academy year. And again, a lot of people, it's 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 erroneously referred to by a lot of people as Starfleet Academy. And it's not Starfleet Academy. It's Star Trek, the Academy years. Well, not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> the, the title on my title page that I always used was Star Trek, the first adventure. Mm. It became the Academy of years, I think, down the line when Harv kind of decided that he was going to really get behind it and push himself as 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 director. Um 
So I, I just actually, uh, actually, uh, I was writing it and I just called it Space Academy, just so nobody would really know what it was, right. you know. And, and in some ways, that was my initial attraction to it because, um, you know, as a kid, you know, there were these books, Tom Corbett, you know, Space Cadet, sure. and, you know, there were a lot of these kinds of shows and things that were about, you know, young, you know, cadets in outer space. And so even though this was, you know, part of the Star Trek universe, I was really attracted to that world, too, of sort of gadgets and gizmos and, and ray guns and aliens and so forth. And the concept that I had was that if Star Trek, the original series, was the future as seen through the 1960s, then this movie should be sort of a retro 1950s version of the wow, of the exactly. future. Yeah. So that's why there's th- you know why we're in, in this story anyway. We don't the transporters haven't been invented. It's still kind of rocket ships, right. you know, yeah. and it's forbidden planet. Yeah, and and that's what attracted me to it because I could sort of simplify it. I could identify with that time and that era, and then use you know, the things that we all kind of remember from those kinds of movies, and we've seen thousands of movies before, Top Gun and, you know, with, uh, you know, with cadets graduating and that whole, there's, there's a story there that fits into place mm-hmm. for almost any kind of uh, approach to to this. So I was very attracted to making it kind of uh, a retro uh, Star Trek. And 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 it, there was a lot of excitement about it internally, wasn't there? I mean, the studio was behind it. Certainly, yeah. Harv was behind it. Yeah, I and, and was sort of given carte blanche to just write it the way I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Harv was very busy at that time with the post production on Star Trek Five, and we were still riding high because I, I just looked at the draft that I was referenced this, this morning. It was a revised first draft from March of '89 which meant five hadn't come out yet. It was still a couple months ahead of that. So we were sort of riding high, figuring like, well, this is going to be a success and this is going to carry us to this. And and, and also, um, you know, there was always a question of whether that classic cast could be reunited. But I know, but we were doing this in a very sneaky way. I mean, it, it, it was pretty clear that if we got to make this and it happened, I don't know whether that would have been the end for the classic cast or not. Right, right. But I think we were just so carried away with the the fun of the the premise and the concept that we just wanted to do it. And it felt very liberating um, also to think that it could be done with an original cast, you know, with new actors, new talent. And, um, and then Harv, at some point, threw his hat into the ring as director... And that didn't really exactly put the brakes on it, but there was a little bumpiness with mm-hmm. with that. And I think his decision to do that came out of a lot of things, and certainly some frustrations with, you know, his relationships with uh, Leonard dominating two movies, and then Bill taking over for another one, and Harv sort of being the you know father figure cleanup man who was trying to continue to uh, you know make these make these films his way too. So I think he saw it as an opportunity to uh, to step into the real captain's chair. Well, I think it's interesting because I think Harv, you know, came out of television where he was sort of in the center seat, the the commander making the decisions, and suddenly he's dressed in the movies where you have these big personalities 
who have as much clout, if not more so, than he does. And that must have been very frustrating for him. So it, it makes sense that he would then want to direct and sort of take back the power. But you know, let me say something about that, because I thought about it, and I thought about it at the time. You know, uh, Harv had a, a film background. He had gone to UCLA, graduated from the film department there. He taught there. He was very active, you know, in, 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 in all of that. And he knew everything about film and production and TV. He was just, you know, that kind of a guy. But he also came out of a generation of producers who felt directing was kind of beneath them, mm-hmm. you know, who yeah. felt that if you were the producer, that was the power, right. you know, position. The, the it was your and, yeah. movie. You hired the director. If mm-hmm. you didn't like this director, you hired another director who suited your needs. So it did sort of surprise me a little that he felt he needed to, you know, direct. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in retrospect, I've always felt that it may be also came from some other pressures in his life, some personal things and some people who were encouraging him to uh, to do that. So even though I think his heart was in it and he wanted to do it, um, I, I was always kind of mystified about the why of it. Although by that time, of course, you know, uh, he was, uh, I don't know, Harv would have been about 60 or something maybe right. at that time, 58. So it was kind of now or never, I think. Right, right. I'm curious, you know, you talked about the fact that there was a long tradition of these academy, like I think about the Lords of Discipline, which was another Paramount movie that came out, uh, sort of about a military academy. Did you have a lot of, did you go back and watch a lot of these kinds of movies? Were there touchstones for you? There were particular films that you might have, obviously you'd had even Top Gun had come out by yeah, then. right. And so if you were saying it's Top Gun, but with Star Trek characters as kids, I mean, I'm sure that was an easy sell to the studio. Yeah, but I think what, it was described that way. Yeah. <laughs> now, what, and what everyone, did, everybody went, I get it. You right, know? right. So you didn't now, have to belabor it. But, but there's what no about, volleyball scene. <laughs> but as yeah. you, you as a writer, what were some of your touchstones or what are the things, did you go back and look at or were you really looking to like West Point like what were your what were your inspirations um, my inspiration was a was an old Warner Brothers movie called Santa Fe Trail mm-hmm. Errol Flynn Ronald Reagan uh, forget who else uh, Raymond Massey <laughs> it was it was about young George Armstrong Custer and Jeb Stewart being cadets together at West Point. I don't know if they actually ever were cadets together at West Point, but for <laughs> but for this fiction, they were young cadets at West Point. Later end up going on this sort of mission to stop the abolitionist John Brown. During the time that they're in training as as, as cadets, there's another cadet who's played by uh, Van Heflin who is sort of a seditionist who's with the abolitionist who's sort of undermining uh, things there at the academy and then gets caught I think for spying and he's booted out. Later Flynn and, and Reagan are out west to capture John Brown. They run into Van Heflin again. Anyway that became a little bit of a, of a, of a sort of uh, foundation you know, for me in doing, in doing this story. It's, it's not that there are the same scenes in it, but it, but it dealt with some of the same issues, and um, I could sort of uh, use some of that in the thing. But also, I was fascinated by—I um, I never really loved military uh, 
you know, stories or movies or whatever. But I loved comic books and stuff, and they were just full of space rangers and uh, explorers and so forth. In the Santa Fe Trail, doesn't he lose the love of his life in that as well? Because that obviously is such a big thing. Spoiler alert in your script. Boy, I'd have to go back and watch the movie, but I, I kind of don't think so, because I'm trying to remember who the, the female lead if there was one it it wasn't one of those usual Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland and he actually played Custer himself a couple years later in uh, they died with their boots on Uh, so that was just kind of a starting starting point for me but you I mean it's such an interesting choice that you make that um, you know the love of Kirk's life you know he loses you know at the end which is I think something similar that uh, Eric Jendrensen does in Star Trek The Beginning as well, and it forever sort of shapes, you know, who Kirk is because, you know, the one woman he really loved and lost. And um, and it's it's a really, really nice story. I mean, and we should talk a little bit about it because it deals with prejudice. It deals with, um, um, you know, Kirk and, and Spock befriending each other. Obviously, McCoy is a vital part of it as well. Um, and then, you know, this big wild adventure that they go on and I mean we could still be watching had that been made 20 years later we could still be watching the the alternate history of Star Trek uh, the continuing adventures of that cast and I'd like to think that in the uh, vast uh, multi-universe existence that we're in there is a universe somewhere where that did happen and we are watching (laughs) Star Trek the 27th adventure yes yeah and there's like a prequel to the prequel correct <laughs> <laughs> how they met in nursery school what? Yeah, exactly it's like star trek babies yeah there was um i i remember at the time harv was thinking okay ethan hawk is captain kirk because mm. he would have been about 24 or 5 or whatever right. at that point and then he also said hmm john cusack as as spock so i don't know whether that would have worked or not but he hmm. but he had some he had a few casting ideas although it never really got quite that far. But we did have um, Nilo Rodas, who was the art director on Five and other yeah. other movies, who did some preliminary drawings and paintings that were pretty awesome. I think they're on the internet. Uh, but he conceived uh, oh, the, the, the costumes at that point, the uniforms and some of the other, other stuff, although he would always um, portray McCoy as a cowboy. Huh. He had this great illustration <laughs> of McCoy in a bunk with his, with cowboy boots on, with his feet up against the wall, leaning back with like a bottle of whiskey or something, and his hat kind of pushed over the front of his face. I said, Neil, you know, he's not really a cowboy. He's kind of a southern <laughs> gentleman, yeah, you know, right. kind of guy. But but I got a kick out of that. Oh, that's funny. That's fine. And then Neil, of course, went on to work on Star Trek VI after that, right. um, even though Harv did not choose to continue right um, because he was so uh, upset about the, the studio uh, um, yeah, and, and also because you know Harv had an overall deal with the studio and he was supposed to be making m- movies other than the Star Trek right. movies but those never got greenlit so I think he was sort of bridling against that too but there was also one or two regime changes during the development of 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 this and that didn't help either right because i think it was it wasn't frank mancuso jr took over the stu- frank mancuso took over the studio and then put um uh this in the turnaround to do star trek six instead yeah i guess i don't yeah. remember it's a long time ago. it's way too painful why to do i remember about. this stuff? <laughs> um so um tell us a little bit about as you remember it um what the story of 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 um the academy year the first adventure was um 
you know, sometimes it's been so long. It's been it's been thirty years, so I have to sort of reacquaint myself with the with the script. And while I was reading it, I was kind of thinking of it in terms of the the J.J. Abrams reboot because you know there was a there was a period of time where somebody would say, "Well, are they ripping off your script? Are they doing your script? Is this going to be the same the same story?" And I remember going to see the Abrams film, and I liked it. I I, I thought that uh, uh, Chris Pine was well cast, and I think there were some you know wonderful things and touches in that, and there were some similarities, but. I realized that if you took 10 writers and said, go write a Starfleet Academy where Kirk and Spock meet as cadets, I think you would have hit a lot of the same, the same beats. So it never, it never, I never felt like that was something that they appropriated, that they discovered that completely, I think on their, on, on, on their own. So in reading it sort of this last time, I was saying to you earlier that it was like, did I write this? Was this something that I I I thought like I was reading something that was written by somebody else, and and I was really enjoying it and kind of like discovering it along the way and kind of being surprised and say, wait, I don't remember that being in it and so forth. So I had a good time kind of reacquainting myself with it, um, but it's a coming of age story. And you know, we were talking about this idea that Kirk loses the uh, the first his first his first love, and that sort of motivates him. And I wanted to do a story where Kirk is sort of the most unlikely candidate to be a captain, that he's kind of a hot shot and kind of a hothead, and he's really into the the thrill of flying and being a space jockey and so forth. And it's through his, connections with with Spock and with this young woman who also aspires to be a captain and who actually takes the captain's seat during the 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 finale before she dies and it's her death basically in 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 Kirk's arms that changes him and he goes in that moment from being a boy to a man to a captain and there's a, a a moment there where Spock is actually nobody's in charge of the ship and it's falling apart and the villains are about to blow us all up and they have to make up their mind. McCoy's sort of almost the senior officer, but he's not qualified. He has to make a choice who's going to lead this, who's going to be the captain. Spock knows the ship better than than anybody else. But Spock says um, that Jim should Jim should be the captain because he has that quality that he doesn't possess, which is leadership. The men will follow him. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the turning point for Kirk to take the captain's chair for the first time and engage uh, with an enemy mm-hmm. and with Spock's help and Scotty to uh, to defeat them. And I forget, who were the villains? You invented an original villain for this piece. Who, who were the villains in your It was... It was a. I'm trying to remember now the name of the uh, the race or the planet that this guy came from, but his name was Calabar, which is a name I stole from a Jack Kirby New Gods comic or, <laughs> or something. I used to I used to read those. I've always thought George Lucas read those too, if you know those. Um, at any rate, um, uh, Calabar was a prince from a from a, another planet 
that was within the Federation. The Federation was barely being formed at this point, and they were discovering new planets and new civilizations, and some were advanced and some were behind. And there was a lot of slavery. There was a lot of, of uh, bigotry and race hatred in the galaxy. And it was dividing up between what were called the Red Bloods and the Green Bloods. So Calabar is, is a Red Blood. Kirk's a Red Blood. Spock, he's kind of a half, he's sort of a mongrel, right? And so this conflict is, is going on in, in, in the galaxy. At, at this time, and Calabar is a, is a competitor with Kirk, a cadet, but you don't really suspect him. There's another character who's introduced, who's the one who's kind of foaming and, you know, preaching this sort of uh, radical bigotry and death to the Greenbloods and so forth. So he's sort of a stealth character who is revealed to be behind this plot, and then ultimately he's the opponent that, that Kirk faces in the end. In, in the academy, during their training, this guy like bests Kirk every time. He's like the best, and Kirk is just sort of right behind him, and there's this competition going on. And in a big training mission, Calabar outmaneuvers Kirk. So the resolution in the end is that Kirk uses the trick that he's learned from Calabar to defeat defeat him. So there's a, there was a nice kind of uh, uh, arc to the whole story. And in between, it was an opportunity to just have fun with these characters and put them into outrageous situations that, that cadets would get into or teenagers would, would get into. Um, and it was particularly satisfying to write uh, Spock, because I think everybody... Um, identifies with Spock's alienation and and this is when he's the most alien he's the first Vulcan ever to attend Starfleet Academy so he's resented and uh, you know pranked and hazed and hooded guys you know jump him and beat him up because he's this other and and you know, it's, it, there's some, I, I thought, some kind of, you know, poignant scenes in it where you're seeing Kirk, alone, uh, Spock, by himself. He's the guy who's eating by himself in the, the cafeteria. Right. He's the smartest guy in class, obviously, but that's not really in, in you know, making him uh, a, popular, uh, a popular cadet. At one point... Um, Kirk and Spock are together on a sort of in a training situation and they they blow it because they can't get along with each other. You know, Jim says this, Spock says this, and it ends up just, you know, blowing up in their in in their face. And the space sergeant who's who's in charge of it says, listen, you know, this wasn't about agility, this wasn't about smarts, this was about character. And you two have failed it completely. So later Spock curious about what character is, asks Jim about it. And Jim says, well, character is sometimes when you do something for somebody else and they don't even have to know that you you did it. So later on in the story, Jim looks like he's going to be flunking his final exams because he hasn't studied enough. And while he falls asleep over his textbooks or whatever they're using in the, in the future, 
Spock, who knows everything, of course, does a mind meld with Jim to implant the knowledge Jim right, needs right. in the in the, in the final exam. So, linear algebra. I'm curious. I mean, which is that's a great what a great moment that is, and also carries on later into the original series. Did you go back and look? I mean, I think about episodes where they referred back to the Academy years, and there's not that many of them in the original series. But I think of things like Where No Man Has Gone Before or Shore Leave, where you actually meet Finnegan. Right. Um, did you go back and do research? Did you go back and watch the original yeah, series? Yeah, I watched, I watched those. Um, you know, I had watched just about every episode, you know, in doing Star Trek V because they had given me all the cassettes. I came home with a giant box of VHS cassettes. And also at that time in L.A., I think that Star Trek was on at night at 10 or 11 o'clock. Yeah, Yeah. And I used to work at that hour, so I would always have it kind of on in the background. And sometimes I'd go, oh, there's a good line. You know, and I'd lift it and go, I can get away with this because it's Star Trek, right? Right. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I I did look at a lot of those. But I have to say that some of the Star Treks that I, original episodes that I like the most, I'm kind of a fan of like a piece of the action. Oh, yeah. Sure. You know? Yeah. I, I, I like <laughs> them when they're kind of having some fun, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there's humor involved. So that was also uh, something that I wanted to uh, focus on in the story. There, there was some criticism that that some of the humor was a little broad, that it was animal house you know in 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 certain places i I didn't feel that way reading through the script again but we definitely wanted to have these moments of character humor and this in some ways unlike star trek 5 was a better uh, perfect place to do that where you could sort of balance humor with adventure and and it was more uh, organic yeah that's sort of a, a process question for you so when I was working on uh, on First Class, the the big challenge was how do you make that movie not about that time when Charles Xavier had hair and you know had a time like in the fifty yard dash, um, you know how do you actually take a character like like Jim Kirk, um, who has this very important relationship with Spock, and reverse engineer the young man he needs to be, identify the scene or the moment that really dramatizes that. And then develop that relationship through. Like clearly, there have to be some structural pins, you know, in that script because I haven't read it. Um, that get you from that point of you know here's Kirk as we're meeting him um, to here is the critical moment with Spock, which sounds like it's it's the character speech. Um, to there's the moment at the end where they're deciding who's going to be captain. Yeah. Um, well, you know, ultimately, what happens is that they—it's discovered that they that they cheated. Mm-hmm. So, so Kirk and Spock are basically suspended. They're pending a review. They don't get to go on the big shakedown cruise mission with the with the other cadets. And in fact, Jim decides he's not even going to try to stay in Star in Starfleet. He's going to join the merchant fleet. Mm-hmm. And um, and Spock comes to him and says, "Does this merchant?" fleet take Vulcans, you know. So they're they're ready to throw in the towel and give it up. Then there's this big danger in space, and now the two of them, with the help of Scotty, have to come together to save the world and, and their fellow cadets and, and, and resolve the conflict. So I, I, I know I haven't actually answered your question, but I'll, I'll tell you something. I don't remember writing this with any real kind of uh, outline. In front of me, I think 
I, I've since changed, and, and now I kind of outline everything. But there was a time when I was writing where it was it just kind of came more organically mm. or more instinctively. And I just felt that this story was was simple enough and that I knew the characters well enough that we could hit those beats and create those arcs and hopefully have a satisfying uh, ending. Well, you were so familiar with these characters because you had lived with them for the last two, three years. I mean, having just finished writing Star Trek V, that going into production, and then writing them, I mean, it seems like the perfect preparation. Yeah, that's why I was so ready to, to do it and have have some fun with it. Now, we talked about the fact that there were these uh, bookends written. Now, did you write them or did Harv write them? Because after the original cast and Gene and everybody were so... Um, outraged uh, about the fact that they were no longer going to be part of Star Trek. Uh, then um, there were these bookends added. At first it was McCoy where he uh, does a, a presentation to the uh, graduating class. There's a dissolve and then we see them young. But that wasn't enough. Then it became Shatner and Nimoy uh, uh, presenting, I believe, also to, to the graduating class. Can you sort of tell us maybe the genesis of the bookends and your involvement, if any, in that? Uh, at some point, you know, when I was had done a few drafts of the script, um, Harv said, and he's a producer, so this is what he does. He says, oh, okay, I'm, now I'm going to do the producer's pass on this. Mm. So what he did was he basically kept the whole bulk of the script but figured this idea out to to give it this wraparound. <clears throat> now, part of that was storytelling, you know, and part of it was political, sure. because the idea was that if Leonard or Bill or D or whoever would participate in this, it, that would give it the sort of seal of a of approval, and the fans could sort of relax and say, okay, it's not all over, it's not changing, um, so so dramatically. Um, I have to say, honestly, I didn't like the wraparounds. Not that they weren't well written or well well thought out, because basically it was Kirk making a speech or or Bones making a speech, and then somebody saying, what were Kirk and Spock like when they were cadets? <laughs> well, let me tell you about that. There were That's an interesting those are, story. Those are two boys, those, those two guys, I they would have been the far last guys I, you know. And then the story, the story concludes... And I think, as I remember, it's uh, McCoy is just sort of walking away, and he takes out his, you know, and says, "Beam me up, Scotty," and he gets beamed up back up to the uh, back up to the ship, back up to the next movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know. I, I I understood why Harv did it, and I think it was probably smart in retrospect. But uh, superfluous. I, yeah, maybe, mm. maybe you know. But it's not that people wouldn't enjoy something like that. I think the fans, I think the fans would have gotten behind it. It definitely seems like it was a very producerial decision. Uh, you know, how can I um, avoid the cast and mass trying to kill this project? You know, I mean, it seems right. like it was a cagey decision. You know, oh, this gives me a way to pay Shatner and Nimoy to, get, you know, endorse the project. Yeah. Um, or, you know, and, well, and, again, there may have also been some practicality, too, in terms of just getting everybody back. They ultimately did get everybody back, but that was always like an uphill climb every time they were trying to. And they just said, why do we have to do this again? You know, mm -hmm. because let's find some fresher uh, approach to it. And also because, you know, the next generation had come along and maybe by the time this would have been coming out, maybe there was another 
series in development, so it needed to be something that was kind of shiny and special and a, a gift, a bonus. Mm-hmm. Now you and, talk. Oh, go ahead, Rob. Well, not, you said Nyla Rodas was doing artwork. So was this an active pre-production, or was this in pre? Pre-production. Yeah, it was more like pre-pre-production. Yeah. yeah. So I they mean, were, but they were spending money. They were yeah. paying artists. Well, yeah. Well, artist. Nilo. Yeah. And Nilo. he was on the, uh, the 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 pay the payroll for Star Trek Five. So I wonder if this is something where he was getting paid for Academy years, or if it was like Harv saying, "Hey, can you do some artists, sketches?" Artists aren't that expensive. <laughs> They they don't they don't consider them an expense. Well, we were doing other things too. I know that uh, we incorporated the idea of maybe shooting in um, the Air and Space Museum in in D.C. Mm-hmm. And Harv had tons of relationships with sure. those kinds of people in the military and so forth. So um, we were we were looking at it practically, right, right. But right. we just never got to the point where we had a, a green light or go ahead. Does the Enterprise play any role in the movie? Yeah, the Enterprise. I think there's, if I remember correctly, there's two, there's two Enterprises. There's one that's a that's a battered old ship of the line. That's the 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 ship that they use for. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm kind of going up, but sorry. I but I think I think that becomes the training cruise ship. This old ship that they use called called Enterprise, and then in the script as I wrote it. After Kirk and Spock have their graduation and, and, and part ways, I wanted to end it with, a, with, a, with the camera sort of going into this, this sort of warehouse, workshop, boiler room where Scotty did all his configuring and thinking and so forth. And you'd see him at a drafting table or something and the camera would maybe kind of go over his shoulder and you'd see that what he was working on was a prototype of the Enterprise that mm. we know from the classic mm. show, which would then sort of fade into the real deal, and you'd hear the space, the final frontier, right. and then boom, it would it would take off. Um, I know that Scotty probably didn't really design <laughs> the Enterprise, <laughs> but it felt really good at the end of the at the end of this uh, movie, and there was also um, this sort of poignant goodbye between. Kirk and Spock, where Jim is Jim has left his uh, against the wishes of his family to to join Starfleet because in this scenario and I think in others his father was you know killed as a Starfleet mm-hmm. uh, pilot and so there's resistance to him doing it but he wants to do it follow this sort of destiny um, and in the end at the graduation ceremony both Spock and Kirk are are given medals for their outstanding service and valor and so forth and Jim then discovers that his mother and brother have come to the graduation ceremony so he has this reunion and this sort of approval and from from them and he kind of like looks off into the distance and there's Spock standing there nobody's come to right see him nobody cares what happens happens to him so they they come together and there's this sort of exchange. Spock has gotten his orders for the USS Corsair, whatever it is. Oh, that's great, Spock. I'm waiting for mine, whatever. And they're saying goodbye to each other. It's like we don't know. I mean, we know where right. their where their paths will go and how they'll come back together. But at this point, they are diverging. Yeah, they. Yeah. And I think as I wrote it, they walk in separate 
directions headed for a common destiny, you know, something like that. Okay. So it, it, I felt like it had a lot of heart in it, too, not just the humor and the adventure and action and so forth, but it had some real kind of emotional uh, uh, moments in it. I, 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 I did a scene where Spock by himself has a like a communication cube or something, as I described it, and he's sending basically a, a verbal letter back to his mother on, on Vulcan mm-hmm. about what he's going through and so forth. But first he's trying to put like a really kind of happy face on it that, you know, I'm doing very well here and everybody likes me. And then he kind of has this breakdown and goes, they despise me. I can't stand it. I don't know what I'm going to do. And then he kind of deletes everything and says, I feel fine. You know, which is, yeah. So, so I I would often as much as possible try to reference moments that I thought would have significance for, uh, you know, for fans. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, being true to canon, you have to send them off on separate paths because, of course, you know, according to the series, and Spock is goes to be on the Enterprise with uh, Jeffrey Hunter, and um, you know, uh, Kirk, Kirk has a lot of adventures. Kirk that we has a lot seen of yet. adventures, yeah, that we haven't seen, and you know, a lot of young women in his future. So, um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you know, and and it's true because your the script does is so full of heart, and I think heart is what is been missing from Star Trek uh, for a long time. We talked about this when we talked about Star Trek V. There's probably no film that better captures the feeling of family from the original show mm-hmm. than Star Trek V did. And, um, you know, I think in the uh, first adventure, you know, you also get this sense of family and, and, and friendship, and, and, and which is at the very heart of the appeal and of, of Star Trek. When did you find out the project was dead? You know, it was one of those things where nothing is ever really dead. You know, you never get like a definite. I remember it. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of it was it was it was like that. There was always sort of this 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 hope, you know, involved that uh, you know maybe six wouldn't come together or they'd come back to us. And and I think um, at some point, maybe in the early two thousands, I think maybe before Enterprise. Sherry Lansing was, I think, running the studio then, and there was another discussion with Harv and the script about maybe going forward and trying to uh, uh, to do it. So, yeah, it was one of those ones where it's never quite dead. Mm-hmm. It just sort of withers and, you know, kind of blows away in the wind after a while. And it wouldn't have been that expensive because you don't have a huge above the line. You're going to have a bunch of young actors you know, it, it was it would, it, it would have been extremely and producible. it was earthbound. You and know, right, for most it was mostly on Earth except you know, for the ending. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it's definitely the one that got away. You just shoot it in a brewery. <laughs> oh. Shoot it in a brewery because, <laughs> of course, the engine room in Star Trek 2009 was infamously shot at the Budweiser plant off the 405 <laughs> <laughs> because that looks like engineering. Um, you compare that to the engineering in Star Trek: The Motion Picture, but I digress. Um, well, I, look, I, I just think it's—it's it's, you know, obviously for us as as fans, it's unfortunate. I'm sure for you, I mean, it was a, a script that you put your heart and soul into, and not to see it see the light of a projector bulb is is frustrating and sad. And but there there are not a lot of scripts unless you're listening to better best movies never made right. that you know yeah. twenty thirty years later people are still you talking know, about. I'm going to uh, put forth the idea of doing a dramatic reading of it on this podcast. Oh, wow, that's interesting. You know, maybe get maybe get some actors in and actually maybe get Bill. We can, <laughs> he, he, can do, he can do Kirk at eighteen. Sure, that's not going to be a problem. <laughs> 
What do you think? Why, maybe, you know what? Ah, shoot, we should have done this for Comic-Con. We should have done a staged reading yeah. at Comic-Con with a, a, a bunch of actors. And... Um, Man, we should get like the Ace Theater or something. You know how we remember I, I did that Star Trek Four stage reading yeah, at, in at, New York. In New York, but it would be so cool to do a stage reading of uh, the Academy of the First Adventure. That's my suggestion. It's a great idea. <laughs> it's a great idea. Um, wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, it would be. You guys, let me know. Yeah, I mean, you know, and uh, we should. We'll have to put our thinking caps on on this one because I, I, if we do it, I want to do it well. I want to get you yeah. know, get really good people. I know Jeff Combs would do right, it. He totally would. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> be McCoy. Um, <laughs> oh, do we do the wraparounds? Oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. Do we do it? Well, you didn't write we'll, them. Harv wrote them, right? We'll have, a, we'll have to. <laughs> we'll, have to have, okay, that. we'll have to have a sidebar off air on that one. Um, but uh, Something to think about. That would be yeah, a really to think about. fun uh, uh, episode of the podcast. And... Um, I think we can get some really great they can, people. They can wheel me in in my wheelchair and put me up front. You know, and I can I'm not going to wait that long. All right, okay. Okay. <laughs> I think um, I'm there already. So, But I, I think we could put together a really great cast for this. Yeah, I think so. Um, and do something really cool. That would be fun. It's great. I, You know, I mean... Yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be interesting. Well, I would suggest that everybody reread the script again just to make ah, sure <laughs> they felt that it was going to come across. You know, I may I may need to make some changes. Oh my god! <laughs> just give me a couple weeks. Look, we 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 love it, and we, and we want to do it. We have some notes. Yeah. <laughs> Does it have to be a starship? Right. <laughs> you know, I'm curious. We talk a lot. We we talk about the fact that we have the best movies never made podcast. But the fact that you actually got to see a version of something that you were intimately involved with creating, which is what Star Trek 09 turned out to be, yeah. what's it like for you as far as, uh, so people understand what a Hollywood career really, you get one thing made, but there's 20 things that don't. Right. And you just have to let them go. Yeah. You know, you just have to keep going. I mean, you had a Dennis Quaid. There were two Dennis Quaid movies in the theater just the, the, a couple weeks ago, and you wrote one of them. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about 35 years ago, you made another one and, and with Dreamscape. and Which we all love. Which we all love. I love. I have a, I have a one sheet for Dreamscape. Heck, I, and it's a mint condition. Rolled, by the way. <laughs> um, I, Is it, has anybody ever asked Christopher Nolan if he's ever seen Dreamscape. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, that's so what was it like asking. for you seeing s at least an idea reach fruition, even though it, it was not yours, but it took years? It, it, it was exciting because I'm I'm pro Star Trek, you know, and it was gratifying that you know something was being done to go back to those those original original characters. But it's true what you say. It's like I don't think I really lost any sleep over this movie not getting made you know right. <laughs> I had a lot of other things to right. do and so this was just part of what was going on at some point and then you kind of lose touch with it a little bit and then maybe it comes back and you know so forth so um, yeah there were lots of ups and downs certainly in in in, in my career this was um, um, for me kind of a sad missed opportunity I think it would have been astounding if it had been done you know executed uh, properly but um, I, I generally have really, very warm feelings about it because I had such a great relationship with Harv and Ralph and those people over there. And for about three or four years, that was my life, you know, being involved in, in, in that. So it has a very kind of, uh, you know, warm, 
sometimes bittersweet but very nostalgic kind of feeling for me. Yeah, but people and you forget. Got to write the you had to write the movie that you wanted to write it sounds like that yeah. they just let you just explore very, and that was that was great and that was that was great of them to give me that opportunity um and which which is not to to put the uh the contributions of harv at any side yeah. to the side i mean that was this was a thing i talked through with harv a lot and and he was very much involved involved in this but when it kind of I kind of felt like, yeah, I was like a kid in my room again, like when I was 12, like drawing comic books or something, yep. you know, and just not caring whether anybody else really saw it or not. Well, we talked a little bit when we talked about uh, Star Trek V at WonderCon, you know, uh, just how unique Harv was. I mean, we obviously brilliant. Uh, he was a quiz kid as a child. Um, uh, he... Uh, had such success on television with a multitude of shows and, of course, did a woman called Golda miniseries. I mean, just a, a real talent. And sometimes in the history of Star Trek, it's a little shortchanged. Uh, but his uh, contribution to um, Star Trek is so significant. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, you, you talk to you, talk to Nick Meyer, you talk to so many people, have such warm and fond memories of, of, of Harv. And it's, it's a wonderful thing because he was a lovely man and a very smart man. And he, he understood Star Trek. Yeah. And at th that is the root of, I think, his success with the franchise. He understood what made it tick. Made did, it I, did I ever tell you the story of um, I'm going to have a light beer? No. Mm -mm. So when I would go into Harv's office where we would sit and spitball and, you know, try to figure these things out, I would usually go in in the, in, in the morning. And if we had some kind of a breakthrough, you know, or a great idea, Harv would clap his hands together and he'd say, I'm going to have a light beer. How about you? I'd say, no, Harv, it's too early for me. And he'd go over. He had a little refrigerator in his in his office, and he'd take a, a beer, light beer, and he'd pop it, you know, and he'd and he'd drink it. Sometimes we would do that. We would have like three or four of those a, a day sometimes. And and Harv later, um, I I believe, or I know he did, um, you know, became sober. But he was but he was one of those producers that were these kind of old school 1960s they, they drove porsches they played tennis they lived hard they were tan yeah. Yeah. they smoked cigarettes you know and like rod serling and these guys mm -hmm. and a lot of them died young yeah yes. but harv survived and um he just had a kind of energy and aura and his friendship uh to me aside from our uh sort of working relationship was very, very important to me, a kind of mentor and a father figure that, uh, you know, was in my life for a long time. I may have mentioned this story before, and stop me if I have, but I, I'll never forget, I was doing the cover story on Star Trek VI uh, for Cinefantastic early in my uh, uh, entertainment journalism career, and um, I'd interviewed Harv uh, at length about... Um, Star Trek Six, and obviously he was very, very bitter about what had happened. The Starfleet Academy got sidelined, and that um, uh, Star Trek Six was going ahead. He wanted to have nothing to do with it, and he vented uh, about Gene, who he felt was the architect of its demise, um, at great length. And I remember coming home. This is, uh, and there was one message on my answering machine. Because this is uh, Harv Bennett. I guess you heard Gene died. I think we should tone down some of the things I had to say. Uh, <laughs> oh man! So I'll never, I'll never forget that that call from Harv. It was, he, it was always funny to see them both in the same room. You know, which I think only happened when I was there, maybe two or 
two or three times, mm-hmm. but it was like one of those things where you can't have two Jesuses in the same room or two guys who think they're Napoleon or they kind kind of like negate each other. It's like a weird kind of thing. Like matter and antimatter. Yeah, it was. It was like that. And, and, And of course, Gene's attitude was, well, I'm the general because this is all mine and yeah. I conceived it and Harves was like yeah but I'm the guy who saved it so I'm in charge and so they had a kind of contentious relationship but Harv was a great diplomat too so those meetings never turned into but Harv always infamously said or, or you know which which really rankled Gene that Star Trek was a beached whale and I came <laughs> in and saved it and I, I think that always <laughs> you know, was at the, kind of the heart of any kind of. But you know, Gene was sidelined, and and Harv was the guy who came in and you know who the studio trusted and respected, and he made a very successful, financially successful, and 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 uh, a critically beloved film, which Gene had. So there was there was all that tension that, that never went away between yeah, the two. Yeah, it was of frustrating them. for Harv when I think <clears throat> ultimately he felt he was sidelined mm-hmm. too. So there was that other connection to. How long do you last in the Star Trek universe? Yeah, everyone's. I mean, look, you, Rick Berman ran that thing with an iron fist for how many decades or over a decade? And eighteen years and twenty you know, seasons. Yeah, yep. and now, look, some people believe that Star Trek doesn't even exist in the Star Trek you know, universe now, anymore. Uh, so. You know, they're, they're they're you know with this Picard series, I'm sure uh, he'll end up watching it on television like the rest of us. Yep. You know, it's like. It, you know, he he he. You there was no aspect of Star Trek university in control, and you know now he's just a guy at home watching it on TV. So it's it's you're right, absolutely. And, and, and how many, only if he pays for CBS All Access. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine the hundreds of thousands of hours that that of Star Trek that now exists? It's insane. It's great. Who would have thought? I mean, yeah. could you imagine back when you were writing Star Trek Five that it would be this? Incredible franchise with all these iterations, and how many shows have it there was been since then? Some episodes yeah. and four movies. Yeah, that's you it. know, at that yeah. time. Uh, so, I mean, when we were kids, it wasn't even was Star Trek. Back in my picture. day, I mean, it was there were seventy nine <laughs> episodes, and that was it. Yeah. And it's like the th- and the cartoons, and and, it was the, like, and a few novels, and, and, and then, right. yeah, and a few novels, which you read novels. all of them. And 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 so it's 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 pretty crazy. I still do. Anyway, look, I, I want to thank uh, David Lowry for once again being with us to talk about uh, the one that got away, and of course uh, our special guests uh, Robert Mark Burnett and Ashley Miller, and of course my fabulous co-host Darren Dockerman. Uh, thanks for joining us on Inglorious Trexperts. If you're a fan, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts like the 4:30 Movie, as well as um, Best Movies Never Made, which this would fit into very well. Indeed, uh, it's available every Monday wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as our new uh, Star Wars podcast, The Rebel and the Rogue, every Thursday night. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. A five. Now, still, is there Apple Podcasts? Because I know they're getting rid of iTunes. So, okay, Apple Podcasts, and you can follow us at Inglorious Trek on Twitter or Inglorious Trexperts on Instagram. Also, a uh, very special thanks to Bill Ritter uh, for making us sound so great. And uh, everyone here at Electric Surge Network, including producer Cynthia Hodge, who's back with us way back there at the uh, monitor. And uh, so until next Saturday, keep on trekking and gloriously, of course. I'm going to have a light beer.
This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.